Do you have an idea for a podcast, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you're overwhelmed by all the tech or you're convinced nobody will actually listen to you. Well, I'm Shauna Game. After nine and a half years as a professional podcaster, at this show, everyone's talking money. And 25 million downloads later, let me tell you the secret to a profitable podcast. It is building a solid foundation, your podcast roadmap before you launch. That's why I created the Podcaster Class, a fast-paced group cohort podcasting for profit eight-week style NBA program. The Podcaster Class is immersive, comprehensive, and insanely motivational. If you want to create a podcast, DIYing a launch is just not the way to go. In the Podcaster Class, you'll get the tools, tips, and strategies to create a podcast that resonates with listeners and one you can be proud of. Get this. 90% of podcasters never make it to episode three. That's 2.8 million podcasters who just quit. So to be a top podcaster, you only need to publish 21 episodes, but you got to make them good. So in the podcaster class, I'm taking the mystery out of how to create, launch, and profit from your podcast so you can create a top 1% podcast just like this one. The May cohort is now open for enrollment. Classes start May 22nd. There are only 15 spots open. You are going to learn podcasting with me and 14 other amazing people. You can learn all the details at thepodcasterclass.com. Use code podcast when you sign up for $100 off. That's thepodcasterclass.com. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I was paying for vacations all wrong. (laughs) I was missing out on miles. I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? I don't know, maybe that fancy hotel upgrade that you have always been dreaming about. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. So the tips for our listeners today, if you are buying your first home, how to best position yourself when you are competing in a multiple offer situation. And if understanding credit is really important to you as far as being best positioned to get an approval for your mortgage loan when you go to apply, I've got some tips in here for you on how to optimize your credit. You're listening to Millennial Money with award-winning money expert and serial entrepreneur, Shauna Come to Game, where we flip the script on the old school approach to everything your parents never taught you about money. Each week, Shauna creates a safe space by talking with special guests from around the world about money wellness, entrepreneurship, traveling like a boss, and what makes millennials tick. Unique stories, trailblazing perspectives, tips, tricks, and everything there is to know about money. Find it all here as you uncover your money story and unlock the life you want to live. Pretty cool, right? Here's Shauna money expert, Indiana Hoosier, and burger aficionado. Welcome, friend. It is so good to have you on this episode. Now, listen, if you listened to the episode last week with Steve Likas, you know I'm moving across country. So my brain is on all things home. And if you're a first-time homebuyer, you are going to listen to this episode literally on repeat. Christy Neruzzi is here to seriously educate you. As a mortgage loan originator for nearly 10 years, she's analyzed 
thousands and thousands of credit reports, helped people have a well-rounded understanding of finance, money, and credit, all that pertains to them. She is sharing how to beat out those pesky cash buyers, how to get the best mortgage for you, and she walks you through the entire mortgage process from soup to nuts. Plus, you must listen to hear Christy bust the myth that you need two years work history to get a mortgage. Even if you own a home, Christy's tips are going to totally prepare you for house number two. I'm Shauna Compton Game. This is Millennial Money. Into the interview we go. I guess to just start out, we are in a very, very crazy real estate market that I don't know if anybody quite saw this coming, but with COVID, just things have changed for sure. And, you know, what is your opinion on how long you think it's going to stay this hot? Like, are we going to stay this way for quite a while? Oh my gosh, I wish I had that crystal ball. (laughs) I will tell you um, from what I'm reading and what I'm experiencing in my market. So I'm in Florida and a lot of people are moving from all sorts of states, especially states that have um, state income tax and a really high cost of living. Uh, Florida, we have no state income tax. We have really hot summers, but you know where to find the air conditioning, right? So it's worth the other, uh, you know, nine months or so of great weather. And uh, what I've been seeing here is just kind of a plateauing of these crazy skyrocketing purchase prices. About uh, three or four months ago, I was seeing where buyers were in multiple offers with 30 and 40 other contenders. I was seeing tens of thousands of dollars paying over the asking price. And it, it was just an all out brawl. It was really stressful to be a buyer. Not that it isn't stressful to be a buyer right now, but my personal experience is I feel like it's it's slowing down just a bit. Um, the competition is still there, but it's certainly not 30, 40, 50 people writing an offer on a property I'm experiencing and my buyers are experiencing multiple offers in in the single digits still. So uh, it really increases your odds, right? Um, I'm hopeful that uh, after the rest of this year, it really balances out. I think we are far from having a truly balanced market. So a balanced market means there's about six months worth of inventory. And that means there's about enough homes on the market for the buyers that are out there. So I think we're pretty far away from that. But right now we just, we, we have such a small inventory. I hope that next year it feels, um, not so difficult to be a buyer where there's just a little bit more inventory. Builders are moving as quick as they can with new construction. So I think that will solve some of the problems. And I think the um, influx of what people were experiencing in this first year of the pandemic during 2020, where they said, you know what, why am I paying $20,000 a year in property taxes? Why am I paying state income tax? I can do my job virtually. So let's find a place where it's a little more affordable to live. And so you see this huge movement. It's almost like when you're, you're playing a card game, you know, uh, I remember shuffling the cards on the table uh, in, in like a little kid fashion. It almost feels like that's what's happening in real estate right now. Everybody's picking up and moving. <laughs> yes, that is a really good analogy. I like that one. And and I've had I I don't even know. I tried to count. I think at least 10 friends call me over the summer who have all been just completely frustrated that they've been beaten out by this new phenomenon. Not really new phenomenon, but I think a lot of people are coming up against this of the the cash buyers for yeah. a home purchase which 
it it always existed, but in some markets, it wasn't quite as competitive as it is now. Yeah. And I, I know you're an expert on on helping us through this, but are there ways we can beat out cash buyers, particularly if we're a first-time homebuyer and we're trying to figure this all out? Absolutely, there are. So not only are you competing with cash buyers that, say, sold their home up in New York, they have a half a million dollars to drop down cash on a home, we're also competing with corporate buyers. So Zillow is buying up homes quickly. Um, Open Door, OfferPad, all of these big corporations are coming in and they're buying homes as well. And what they're doing is more of a long-term strategy. Some of them put a, a little bit of landscaping and a fresh coat of paint and they turn around and put it back on the market. Some of them are intending on putting tenants in the home, getting top dollar for that rent. Hopefully one of those frustrated buyers that have no other place to go because they've run out of time, right? Their lease is up. um, They're at the end of their wits saying, I can't play this game anymore. You know, um, it's that reticular activator of ours is, is in high gear, meaning when you're looking for a home, you're buying a home, that's all you do. That's all you see. That's all you spend your time uh, focused on. You're on those apps, right? Looking constantly and in, you can only do so much of that every night, every weekend, going and looking at homes, or you get really excited about a home. And before you can even pull into the driveway, it's under contract. So we've got a lot of competition. There's a few different tips that I'm finding my buyers are, are uh, utilizing, and we're finding a lot more success these days utilizing. So, um, you know, the, the good old adage is cash is king. But I will also tell you, if your realtor can find out a little bit about the sellers uh, and and pull on those uh, heartstrings, there can be some significant headway for for you as a buyer. So let me give you a couple of examples. Let's say we can find out that the sellers have lived there. Maybe they've raised their kids in this home. They've lived there for a long time. They're invested in that neighborhood. They've got 10, 15, 20 years. They care for their neighbors. They wouldn't necessarily want to sell to a corporate buyer who's going to A, flip it, or B, put tenants in there. Maybe they're really good friends with their next door neighbor, and they want somebody who wants to get invested in that neighborhood and that community and really uh, grow their roots in, in that home. So if we can find out how long the seller has owned that home. And that's really easy. That's on public records. You could just go to uh, a property appraiser's website or tax collector website in your uh, county and look that up. You can see the last time a a sale has happened. So if they're long vested, uh, knowing that you're going to move into it as your primary home, and I think that's really important for your realtor to present it that way. My buyers love the home. They they want to raise their kids in this fam in this home. They want to build their family. They want to you know have their doggies running around in that beautiful yard of yours. Those kinds of things uh, that can help separate you and pull on those heartstrings from uh, going against somebody who might be buying it as a corporate buyer. As far as um, positioning your offer, I have found that utilizing an escalation clause is getting some attention. So I'd love to define that just in case somebody hasn't heard that term before. So you don't want to overpay for anything. We've never wanted to overpay for anything. So if a home say is listed for 350,000, I'll give you an example that I was just working literally 20 minutes before we spoke. It's listed for 340. The realtor pulled some comps, comparable home listings. And she said, 
I don't think we're going to have a problem with it appraising at 350 or 355 at this point. So it's listed at 340. We're going to go in at a 340 offer, but we're going to include an addendum with an escalation clause. So what we're saying is we're going to pay up to 355 um, as a max. So it's not like it's uncapped. So my buyers are qualified and prepared to pay up to 355 for this home. So we're offering 340 with an escalation clause of paying $1,500 over any other higher offer than our 340 submitted offer. So let's say somebody else offers 350, then we'll wind up buying it at 351,500. So we're capped out at 355. A, we know it's going to appraise out at that. So we shouldn't have a shortage there. And B, they're qualified and they're comfortable paying up to 355. But in this case, they wouldn't even have to pay 355, right? If the highest offer is 350, because there's no way to know when you're in a multiple offer situation, the listing agent is unable to tell you what the offers are. And so this is a way to get Uh, extra special attention on your offer, but not having to be the quote unquote highest uh, and best, right? So if somebody is higher than your 355, uh, well, you gave it your best shot and you went up to what you were comfortable with paying. So walk us through a little bit about what that means with an appraisal, especially in the market we're in. If If you put in an offer that's, I mean, out here in Los Angeles, people are putting in offers that are 100K plus over the asking price. So what happens if your house just doesn't appraise for that value? Great question. So um, I'm going to answer this kind of in two parts because uh, depending on what kind of buyer you are has a little bit of a different connotation. So um, if you are purchasing your home with financing, the financing guidelines say the loan to value is based off of the appraised value or the contract price, whichever is less. So let's say we get this house for 350, but it only appraises out at 340. The loan to value will be based off of that 340. So right now we've got a $10,000 kind of shortage. Now, as a first time home buyer, you can buy with a conventional loan with as little as 3% down. So what we would do is we'd base it off of that 340 and that 3% down, but then now you've got to cover that $10,000 shortage, which essentially means in this scenario, you're coming to the closing table with 10,000 extra. Uh, Prior to this crazy market of ours, we used to be able to consider three different ways of handling that shortage. Either the buyer pays it, the seller reduces the purchase price to match the appraisal value, or there's some kind of split. Maybe it's, hey, I'll I'll take 50%, you take 50%, we'll meet in the middle. This time though, a lot of sellers don't have to budge off of their uh, agreed upon contract price. So in this case, our first time home buyer with 3% down will have to have that 3% down based off of 340. So the 3% down is is reduced a little bit, but they would have to come out of pocket with that difference between the appraised value and the contract price. Now I'm doing one right now where it appraised for 340, but we're in contract for 345 and our buyer agreed to pay for that shortage. Well, he's putting down 15%. In his case, he doesn't have to come up with that extra $5,000. In other words, on paper, it's just not an 85% loan to value, I'm mixing it into the loan where now he's at like 86.7% value. 
It didn't affect oh. anything as far as his cash to close. It didn't change his interest rate. It, it didn't change his mortgage insurance. It really didn't change anything for him. But on paper, he's not putting down quote unquote 15% because it's based off of that, you know, that lower price at uh, appraised value. So it's just kind of a movement of numbers. So it will it will feel painful for somebody who's got a very small down payment. Now, let's say we were putting down 20% because 20% is that magic number where you no longer have mortgage insurance, right? <laughs> mortgage insurance is there to insure the lender's risk, right? If you've got less than 20% skin in the game and they've got that 80 something percent or greater skin in the game, they've got a little bit um, of worry there that if you just woke up tomorrow morning and said, I'm done with adulting, I'm heading to Costa Rica and I'm going to live on a beach. Um, if they had to sell that home uh, quickly in a foreclosure with all the costs and everything else, that mortgage insurance makes sure that the seller is paid in full, or excuse me, that the lender is paid in full. So 20% is a magic number. So if you've put down 20% and that appraisal comes in short and you don't have any extra money to come to the closing table with, then that might make it where you have a itty little bitty bit of mortgage insurance for a short amount of time. Because now instead of your loan to value being 80%, it might be more like 81 or 82%. But mortgage insurance will drop once it's paid or you know down to where it reflects an 80% value based off of that appraised value. I'm going to be real with you. Identity theft is on the rise and you do not want to wake up one morning and discover that your bank account has been emptied or you're overdue on credit cards you never even applied for. We talk about this often on the podcast, but you don't realize how much of your information is available to scammers on the internet, and how susceptible you and your family are to identity theft and fraud. I know, it's scary, but now you can get your data removed with Delete Me. That's why I personally choose Delete Me. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. I just started using Delete Me and I got my regular personalized privacy report. <laughs> I was shocked what they found and removed. It was pages of information about me that I did not want online. Here's how it works. You sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. I cannot tell you how relieved I felt to have Delete Me. And you know, it's also a great service for your parents or grandparents to help protect them from identity theft. Delete Me is not just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you do not want on the internet. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special price for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom etm and use promo code ETM at checkout. The only way you get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash ETM and enter code ETM at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E.com slash ETM. Go to joindeleteme.com slash ETM and use code ETM for 20% off. The weather is getting warmer. I'm so excited. And it is time to say goodbye to all those jackets and sweaters and hello to the shorts and t-shirts. 
I wanted to update my summer workout wardrobe for the long haul without, you know, spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince and I am in love. Quince is your go-to place from everything from premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless, 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part of all, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Okay, I bought the dreamiest pair of workout leggings and a bright pink workout top to match. Honestly, ladies, I gotta tell you, these leggings you need. The price cannot be beat, and I feel like a million bucks wearing this cozy workout friendly outfit. I've worn it for like five days straight. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash etm for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash etm to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash etm. Okay, friend, I want to know, what are your money goals this year? Are you saving to buy a house or maybe a wedding or a dream vacation to somewhere tropical? If that's you, please, please take me with you. Or maybe you want to just grow your emergency fund because let's be real, life is expensive. I want to make sure you reach your goals. So you need Monarch. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, track progress towards your financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com etm. Here's what I love. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can go between light and dark mode. You can create custom budgets and notifications. You can set up all of these automatic rules for your transactions and notifications and so much more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving their product. Get this. They release updates every two weeks and they even allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. This my friend, is totally original. Plus, they will never sell your data to third party or show you ads. I think that's really important. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it is the top-rated personal finance app. And now, listeners of this show get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com etm. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash etm for your extended 30-day free trial. Okay, that was that was like our um our appraisal 101 course. I love it. <laughs> that was so practical. Well, t- tell us a little bit about because you've been a mortgage loan originator for for 10 plus years. Tell us a little bit about like what exactly a mortgage loan originator does because I think we understand to some extent what a realtor does, but when it yep. comes to mortgage it's kind of like Huh? How uh, how is this person involved? How do I pay this person? Can you walk us through like just w- what we need to know? 
Absolutely. So by a raise of hands, who wants to take on debt? Like no one, right? (laughs) But if we want to leverage those things that we want to purchase in our life, and we don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars just sitting around waiting to get assigned to something, uh, we have to go and get financing for it. So what I do is I help find the best loan program for a buyer. And trust me, there are dozens and dozens of lenders out there. There are hundreds and thousands of banks. Um, so the the difference, there are some, when I say lender, there are lenders that don't necessarily have a banking institution assigned to it. Uh, in other words, they just loan money for the purpose of you financing your home. So your home is the collateral. So it's a secured debt. So again, back to that example earlier about, you know, forgetting about adulting and running off to Costa Rica. Um, if they had to try to collect on that debt, they could sell that collateral, which is the home. So um, in order to buy your home, when you don't have cash money, you have to go get financing. As a mortgage loan originator, all I do is originate mortgages. So what that means is somebody comes to me with the ask of, I need to get financing to purchase my home. So I work with a dozens of lenders. Uh, in, in the world out there, I'm known as a, a broker or a correspondent. So in other words, I don't work specifically for one lender. Although if I were to work for a bank, I would work for that bank. So there's a lot of different structures out there and you'll find what's best for you. My recommendation is you talk to at least two people and get a second opinion because there are lots of different loan programs and lots of different interest rates as well. So what I do is I have to follow a certain set of guidelines, depending on which loan program. So if you were a veteran, I would follow the VA guidelines. If you're just, you know, you you don't have uh, any VA eligibility or first time home buyer or a next time home buyer, we're likely going with like a conventional mortgage or an FHA mortgage. Those two tend to be the greater part of what's originated when it comes to mortgage loans. And so when I take certain information, I ask for income and assets and employment history. And we put together this, this, uh, application and based on, and when I say profile profile almost has a, a bad, I don't, I don't know, feeling <laughs> out there right now. Cause we're profiling. When I say profile, I'm saying, uh, you as a risk or, um, the ability to repay, we look at that as a whole. So credit is first and foremost, if you have a five, 100 credit score, you're likely not going to be able to get approved for much of of any loan programs out there. There's one loan program, but it it requires a substantial down payment and those kinds of things. But um, credit is a snapshot in time of your ability to borrow money and pay it back on time. And so that's a part of it. Then we we look at your employment history. And there's a lot of confusion because sometimes people uh, have heard rumor or myths that you have to be in your job for two years to get approved for a mortgage. And that is not the truth. Um, We do look at two years of employment history, but education can fulfill that two-year history. So I've got somebody who's just finishing up her um, education to be an RN, and we're just taking her transcripts, and that's fulfilling that that time where she was a full-time student, and now she's going to start working for a hospital. Wow, so, I I never knew that. That yeah. is that is like myth busting. Yeah, um, <laughs> there are so many myths out there when it comes to credit and mortgages. So we do look at the last two years. Now I will say. Um, 
when it does come to quote unquote profiling, uh, the underwriter who's the decision maker that follows those guidelines, they're looking at your history as far as not only your ability to borrow money and pay back on time, but what kind of habits do you have when it comes to money? Um, do you max out all your credit cards and just feed that minimum payment and kind of utilize it as like an installment loan? Or do you tend to, you know, pay it down and, and use it, but not max it out? Um, are you making your payments on time? Do you look like you're stretched to the guilds with debt that if one tiny little thing happened, you would either have to go apply for a new credit card or you're missing a payment on something so that you can take care of that thing. The other thing that they're also looking at is they're looking at um, your, your history when it does come to employment. So let's say we've got a snapshot of two years of history. If you have seven jobs, <laughs> that may not prove stability in your ability to keep work. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, jobs and employment is just not the same as it was 10 or 20 years ago. Um, you know, where if you had a job or two in the last two years at school, a lot of people that I'm working with have multiple quote unquote jobs at a time because they're side hustling. They, they're picking up gigs. So we have to really treat that as if, okay, this is the thing that you are. And these are the, the places that you do that for. So I have to present it to the underwriter that this person is not a job jumper. They just happen to have uh, relationships with multiple quote unquote employers um, at the same time, or sometimes things are seasonal, right? So you might pick up some jobs over here and some work over there, depending on what time of year it is. So it's my role to present you to the decision maker in the best light possible. I also have to know my guidelines for that loan program. So, um, I, I in full disclosure, it's like a solid two years of learning this business and learning my dis and learning my guidelines. Um, I don't even know how I got through my first two years, but, um, experience really counts when it, when it comes down to this. So I heard a statistic somewhere and honestly, if I had to source it, I wouldn't be able to, but I heard someplace that like 50% of mortgage loan applications that are started or originated don't get to closing. And it was kind of a startling number to me. So part of that might be you're approved, but you can't find a home. So you just kind of gave up, you're renting, you'll try again next year. Um, so it's not all like, hey, I didn't get approved. M maybe there were some other circumstances sprinkled in there as well. But I tell you what, I get a lot of turndowns from banks and other places where I look at this loan application. I'm like, why couldn't they approve this loan? <laughs> so um, as a loan originator, I feel like I'm a solution creator to, to provide the financing that best fulfills my buyer's needs, uh, your desire for your cash out of pocket, your goal for your monthly payment. And, you know, we've got to make sure it buys a home that you love pulling into that driveway every night. Like who wants to buy a tiny little, you know, shoebox that you're not really excited or proud of. Now there's a difference. There's such thing as a starter home, right? <laughs> it gets you into the marketplace. And the cool thing is, and I want to make sure first time home buyers hear this. If you've owned your home, for two out of the last five years. So let's say you bought your home two years ago and you've really outgrown it. Maybe you've got some dogs or some kids or, you know, you just, you're ready for some, some more space. Um, if you sell that home and you take the equity out of that home, so let's say you sell it and you made $75,000 net equity, you can put that into your next home 
but you don't have to. It's tax-free money. So when it comes time to do your federal income taxes for the year, you don't have to pay capital gains tax if it's been your primary residence for two years. So I've got a lot of people in my life, they buy their first home, right? Their starter home. They they beautify it as they're living in it. Maybe they tackle changing out the the Formica countertops to something really beautiful like granite or quartz. And then they work on the floors, you know, the next six months and then they replace the baseboards and paint the walls and all those things, right? So after two years, they've really beautified that home, brought a lot of equity and just ownership. In the last year on a national level, the values of homes have averaged 17% gain in equity. It's incredible. So let's say you've owned it for two years, you went to sell it, and you get that $75,000 or whatever, right? I'm just making up a number. If you you can put that, roll that all into your next home, you could be qu- quite close to your same payment, but now you've got this substantial down payment instead of say your 3% that got you in. So now you can buy an even higher priced home and maybe even stay close to that same payment and then just do that every two years. You'll never pay capital gains on that money um, as long as you've owned it as your primary residence for two years. So I know people that every two years they, they move. But if you think about it, um, you know, for most of us, it's 25 to 30 something percent in uh, federal income taxes on our income. So if, if you got $75,000 out of your house, that could relate more like a hundred thousand dollars, you know what I mean? In taxable income. So I think it's a great strategy to build wealth long-term. So, um, you know, or you can flip a home, your, your starter home into a rental property and buy your next home with as little as 5% down. If you went with a conventional loan or three and a half percent down with an FHA loan. So that's a great way to start building wealth through real estate. Now, is it, is that number capped? If let's say we made 150,000 or 200,000 or whatever the number is, on our first house and we live there two out of five years. Is that, is there a ceiling to that, to that number that is uh, tax-free essentially? There is. So according to the irs.gov website as of right now, because who knows next year might be something very different, but at the time of this recording, if you're single or you file single, it's 250,000. If you file jointly, it's 500,000 and that's equity. That's not sales price. So one of the things I want to ask you, you talked about, you talked about credit score. And mm-hmm. so if, if I'm somebody who maybe I have a credit score in, let's say the 600s, maybe a little lower, but we're not, we're not above 700. We're not above mm-hmm. the, the optimal credit score. Should we wait to try to buy a house or does it maybe not make sense? Or are there ways we could maybe better our credit score in a short time, at least to give us some sort of bump? Absolutely. No, great question. And I say the best time to buy is now. So, you know, we, we are going to be facing a really big problem with inflation. I don't have a crystal ball, but my presumption is that next year interest rates will creep up and that's going to interfere with your buying power. Because if you've got more of your payment going towards the interest portion of the principal and interest, that means it lowers your uh, purchase price, your, your buying ability. So um, if you're looking to buy a home now or in the near future, I talk with a lot of people that they're considering buying about 12 months out. Maybe they've just renewed their lease and they're like, you know what? I don't want to do this again. Or they just moved and they're like, 
I really want to get my roots down someplace. And there is such a pride of ownership. It just changes something inside of you when it comes to owning a home. Um, I would say start talking to a loan officer right now. Uh, don't just pull somebody off of the streets. It should be somebody that's recommended either by your realtor, if you're working with a realtor, or check with a friend. If you've had somebody that has recently purchased a home, y'all, it is it is a lot of work. It is a big <laughs> stinking deal. Um, so if your friend says, Hey, we just bought a home. Don't go. Oh, yay. Congratulations. Go like, wow, you did it. Cause it, it is a lot of work. And if it were easy, everybody would be doing it. Right. So there's a couple of things you could do right away. Talk to a loan officer. You can have a very casual conversation without committing to a loan application, without getting your credit pulled. So here's my recommendations to uh, optimize your credit and you don't have to wait for a very long time. So um, you want to make sure first off, you're minimizing your inquiries. So if every time you go to a store or the mall, they offer you 10% savings. If you start a credit card, like stop doing that. <laughs> uh, every time that's a hard inquiry, to your credit. And that hard inquiry will stay on for two years. Now, a lot of times, and, and people don't usually know this, when you pull credit for different purposes, it has a bigger hit to your credit uh, because now you're almost looking like a credit risk. Let me give you an example. Let's say I went to uh, my favorite department store. They said, you know, you can save 10% if you uh, apply for a credit card today. And I say, well, gosh, yes, that sounds great. Give me a credit card with 25% interest. And then this weekend, my car just, it's going, right? And I know I've got to go and, and buy a new car. So next week I go to a couple of dealerships and I pull credit for an auto loan. And, um, then I decide in a month, you know what, I think I want to own a home and I start a loan application and now I've applied for a mortgage. All three of those examples are three different types of credit polls. And now I might almost look like a, a flight risk or, you know, a credit yeah. risk. Like what is Christy over here really trying to do? Is she going to rack up all this debt and then fly away and, and live in Costa Rica? So minimize your inquiries as much as possible. My number one tip is to become an authorized user. So what that means is find somebody in your life that has had a long-term standing relationship with a credit card. Usually it's a mom, a grandma, an aunt, somebody who's maybe a little bit older than you that has had a little bit more time to have an established relationship. So let's say your mom has had her Discover card since 2005, right? Like for, for somebody that's mom status, 2005 doesn't seem like so long ago. So 16 years of a credit card though, that's a substantial credit history. And let's say mom only puts gas and groceries and a couple of bills on her discover card, and then she pays it off, right? She pays it off in full. She'll likely have a really high limit and a really low balance. But what's incredible is this long standing history. If mom adds you to be an authorized user on that credit card, a, there's no inquiry because you're actually not responsible for that debt. You're not a co-signer on that credit card. You're just a user. Mom's still responsible for that debt in full. Secondly, because you're not responsible for that debt, it doesn't go against you in your debt calculation when you do go to apply for a mortgage. So let's say it shows a $40 minimum payment. We don't have to hold that against you when we're calculating what's called a debt to income ratio, which is really substantial. But the most important piece of all of this is that you get that 16 years worth of credit history with that credit card automatically added to your credit history. It is so wonderful for somebody who has really thin credit, or maybe you're a little bit younger and just starting off. Maybe you're just starting off with credit in general it has nothing to do with your age. So um, if you were to go and start a credit card right now, it would start now. 
Well, kind of like dating, like that first six months, you're just trying to feel each other out. (laughs) So it doesn't really help your credit so much. Plus you had a new inquiry and they they don't know enough about you to see your payment history and your ability to, to repay what you've borrowed. So that authorized user is so significant. I have had clients go from 500s to 700s within weeks. Now the catch is we have to wait until that credit card that you are now an authorized user of until that reports. So let's say the 19th is when that bill is due. It will likely report on the credit reporting agencies, those bureaus around the 19th, give or take a few days ahead or behind. So you have to wait until that hits in order for you to have that um, help your credit. And the other thing I want to say is it, you don't get a bunch of gold stars for having, you know, 30 credit cards in your wallet. (laughs) So uh, if you are starting off credit, it's really important to have one credit card and one installment loan. So an installment loan example is uh, a mortgage, an auto loan, a student loan, something that you're paying on. Now, a lot of people have had their student loans in this administrative forbearance. So if you're not making payments, it's not helping, but it's not hurting. It's just kind of neutral. So something that you're actually making payments on. And before I get off of credit cards, I do want to say, really work on keeping your balance as low as possible. It used to be that the magic threshold was 30%. So let's say you have a limit available of $1,000 on your credit card. You really wanted to keep your balance below 300. Um, now, some of, some of those people out there are saying like, you you really want to keep it somewhere between nine and 11%. I'm like, what's the point wow. of having a credit card? Right? That you can seems fill up crazy. Your gas- yeah, <laughs> you can fill up your gas tank and that's it. So, um, but, but I know some people will go and max it out and then, you know, pay it off in full or pay what they can try to try to stay away from, from, from putting too much on it at one time, uh, because you can now look a little bit like a, a credit risk because it's called, um, overutilize, overutilization of debt. So they've created these rules and we have to figure out how to play inside of their, their, their rules that they've created. Fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh- Last question. I feel like we could talk forever. This information is like golden. I mean, anybody listening to this episode, you are getting a serious, serious education in buying a house. But you talked about buying a home as as an emotional journey, which I remember buying my first house. It was both this uncomfortable combination of like sheer panic and sheer elation. And I didn't know which one I was in at whatever time. But if if somebody out there is is going to buy, especially in this crazy market, I'm wondering if you have any suggestions for just how to even mentally prepare like our money mindset around buying so that we we can go into this really enjoying this process and not have it be panic filling. Absolutely. So I've got 30 thoughts that just hit my head. So let me try to <laughs> organize what would be most important to tell you in a, in a short amount of time. Um, I don't care what kind of personality you have, you become this like emotional mess going through this. You get uh, financially naked when when you go through this process. You have to be very vulnerable because you are providing everything. I get to see your credit history. I see what money you have in the bank. I see how much money you earn, how much money you've saved. I look at your borrowing habits. Like I had mentioned earlier about how do you utilize those credit cards? And um, so, so you get really naked and vulnerable feels uh, scary 
it's scary. And even if you're perfect, what you think to be perfect on paper, there could be something out there. And I think the, the fear of the unknown, maybe even of the buying process unknown, but also like, could there be something that I was not aware of that could provide a rejection. Nobody wants rejection. And so it's about a 30 day window from the time you do get your offer accepted and go into contract to the time that you close, give or take a week or two, depending on your market, depending on, uh, on a few things. So when it comes to being prepared, uh, if you are somewhere between six and 12 months out, have that conversation with a loan officer. You can even pull your own credit report. I have this happen all the time. Pull your own, you know, credit karma or Experian or whatever. Send it to me. Let me take a look. And if I have and your loan officer, if they have any recommendations, follow those recommendations. If they say, hey, pay down this credit card, keep these payments up, maybe start that authorized user so it, it gets onto your credit. The other thing is um, where your money is coming from. Are you getting a gift from your family? Is Are you borrowing from your 401k? Is it raw money sitting in your account that is uh, your savings? Um, underwriters hate cash and actually we can't use cash. So if you have cash money hidden in a safe or underneath your mattress, you need to have that conversation with your loan officer right away to find out how to best utilize and get your hands on that money in a way that we can actually incorporate into the purchase. So keep in mind that home is where the heart is. And that's why it is so emotional. And I can't think of one thing in our world that doesn't involve or tap into money in some way, right? So money is is very emotional, whether we give it credit and acknowledge that or not. For some people, they sleep better having savings, you know, cash money in their in their savings account. And the thought of parting from that to put it into the house um, can cause a lot of anxiety. So even just kind of tricking your mind into saying, listen, it's still your savings. We're just moving it from here over there. The last thing I would say is work with an experienced realtor, somebody that is recommended to you, uh, a friend or a family member that has had an awesome experience. I've seen so many people lose out when they're making offers or overpay or just not have the proper negotiations because they, you know, they got their cousin, Jeff, that just got their real estate license and Hey, I'm going to help them out. Maybe cousin Jeff can work under a mentor. So a Jeff can learn the business because it's a hard business to learn, but B you have somebody with solid negotiation skills. That's going to have your back. It's going to fight for your best terms. Um, that's going to help you through this process because I mean, there's somewhere like 18 different professions that have their hands on your, uh, purchase throughout the process from the appraiser to insurance, to a survey company, to a title company. I mean, there's so many people that show up to this party for you. And so if you align yourself with the right team members, you will feel your anxiety level go down. It's really important to have a great understanding of what you're actually committing to, what it's going to feel like. Um, I hope it's okay if I do a quick plug. I have some videos I've created on my YouTube channel that would be a great place to start. It's about a 20 minute video and, and it literally just start, you know, from start to finish what you can expect from the experience of buying a home that should bring you some comfort because now you have a little bit of understanding of what it's going to be like and what it's going to feel like. Christy. Amazing. Yes. Please tell us, okay, where do we find your YouTube channel? What's your channel and how do we connect with you? 
outstanding. I appreciate this. So um, I actually have two YouTube channels for my for my listeners here that are intending on buying a home or even their next home uh, in the future. Go to your lone superhero. And I've got a ton of little short videos there. I've also got a second channel at Credit Christie and it's K-R-I-S-T-I. So Credit Christie. Um, that's a lot on money and mindset and uh, some some things outside of the mortgage realm. And if credit is really important to you, I also have a podcast called Credit Coaching by Christy. And at the time of this recording, I've got 50 something episodes up there to teach you how to have an optimal credit score. I see so many people spending way too much money in finance charges because they have an ugly credit score because they simply haven't been taught this by anybody in their life. And it's unfortunate because, you know, my parents didn't know, maybe your parents didn't know. So you can't teach what you don't understand. And it's just not taught in school. So it is my mission to get some information out there. Just like you, Shauna, we are here to serve people in a really big way. You I love the content that you put out because you are serving your audience so well. So I want to edify you for all of the hard work you put in into what you're up to. It's just incredible information. I mean, how amazing is Christy, right? <laughs> Forget Googling how to buy your first home. Just come back to this episode because there are so many gems in here. I honestly never knew that for a mortgage, you could use your college experience as part of your two-year work history. It's so, so fascinating. Now, if you've got one minute, do me a favor. Share this episode with five of your friends who are buying a house right now. Tell them they must, must hear this information. Tell them they can just thank you later. <laughs> As always, you can head to the show notes for all the links to our episode guests and sponsors. I'll see you back here in a few days for a brand new episode. Hey, you. Yes, you. Before you go, we want to say thanks for listening to this episode of Millennial Money. For all the links, tags, and ads you've heard on today's episode, check out the show notes or go to mmoneypodcast.com, where you'll find more episodes to share with your friends. While you're at it, leave us a review and make sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss out on all the money tips and tricks that will take you from a millennial regular to a millennial money expert. See you back here in a few days with a fresh new episode. Everyone knows that putting money aside in savings is really important. But then what? Should you keep your savings locked in a CD for a higher rate or keep them liquid in a money market? Can your checking account help you save too? Or is it about creating the right combination? We believe real banking is a conversation. Let's talk about the savings options that are right for you. Learn more at sandyspringbank.com. Member FDIC.